Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad to have you here with us this morning. I have the privilege, and some of you have been through this privilege, and some of you are in this privilege, and some of you will soon have this privilege of raising middle school girls. It's an exciting experience. We had a conversation the other night uh, at the dinner table about how they really love one of their teachers. So as a parent, you lean into that, you go, okay, what do they love about this teacher? And the, the main criteria of why they love this teacher is because she never teaches anything. That was the criteria by which she was given. She said, yeah, we come into class and she just talks or she just listens and that's it. There's no class, we don't have, that's all that happens. So as a parent, you walk through this and you think, do I really, do I want to send an email? Do I want to be that parent? Uh, or, or is there something else going on? And I thought about it in my own experience, I was thinking back into my college years, one of my favorite professors in college was a professor who didn't teach us anything. I love that guy. We'd go into class and he would tell us what was going on in life and it was a youth ministry class. And so he was raising a high school daughter. At the time, he's teaching a middle school youth ministry, excuse me, a youth ministry class and he's got this high school daughter and he's dealing with these issues with his high school daughter and he would just sit at his desk or stand at his desk and pound on his desk and tell us the crazy things that were happening in his home. And I will tell you that something about a real life person dealing with real life things, I remembered that youth ministry class better than anything else I learned in youth ministry. And so, at some of the things that he was going through at the time, things that stick in my mind all these years later, and became a close personal friend, he uh, ended up coming uh, different times. I, I, I stepped in after him uh, at a worship leader position that he had. I actually followed him at that church, and so he and I stayed uh, in contact often, and he came to the hospital when our son was sick and prayed with us with our, our son there in the hospital. And so, it's a real close relationship that formed. Uh, but when some of the things he was talking about dealing with his daughter, and I don't know if these will be current because uh, even though it's only been about 15 years ago, he was talking about when boys started calling the house and wanting to talk to his daughter. Now, I don't know if I'll have to deal with this because boys will be texting the house, I suppose, or whatever that looks like. Uh, but he would talk about how he would pick up the phone, and then on the other end of the phone, there would be a, hey, can I talk to Lauren? And he said, hey, who's hey? I mean, hey, can I talk to Lauren? Who is this? And on the other end, the boy's voice would say, Colin, can I talk to Lauren? And he said, this is Lauren's dad. You're going to talk to me before you talk to Lauren. And he said, okay, hey. <laughs> is Lauren home? And this back and forth between an angry father who's ready to climb through the phone and grab this boy and strangle him, and he's trying to protect and trying to figure out what it looks like to be a dad to a teenage daughter. And the illustration that he gave, and I remember all these years later, he said, I feel like my daughter actually wants me to be the gatekeeper to our home. But it's a confusing time because I feel like I'm running the bases and she's the base coach and she's telling me to run and she's telling me to stop. She's telling me to come close and to stay far away all at the same time. And I don't know what to do 
And here's my professor telling us this in the youth ministry class. And the main thing that he helped us remember was saying, this is what your parents that you as youth pastors are walking through when you're trying to give them counsel or trying to give them advice uh, in youth ministry of how to deal with their kids. I will tell you, just as an aside, how grateful I am, and I know that you are as well, to have Pastor Mario and Denise working with our students here at Randall Church because they are helping us navigate these things as well. Yes. Young love is a very special thing. Uh, I read a story this week about a young soldier who uh, found a girl in a nearby community and began writing her letters. He wrote her letters sometimes seven, eight times in a week, and he would write her these letters again and again. And she, for the first few weeks, would write letters back, and they had this correspondence going back and forth, back and forth. But over time, the letters began to slow, and she didn't seem to write as many letters back. And all of a sudden, he realized there was no letters coming back whatsoever. And so he wrote her a letter in desperation about a month later that basically said, what is going on? I'm writing you all these letters, and, and, and do you still have feelings for me, or is this relationship over? You need to uh, really be willing to, to define the relationship of where we're at. And she said her response to him was that her feelings towards him had diminished uh, over the time, and that now they were practically gone. And she explained why. She said, every day for the past three months, I waited expectantly for your letter to come in the mail. Every day I was waiting and looking for your letter to come, and now things have changed and I'm going to marry the postman. (laughs) Raise your hand this morning if you are single. Raise your hand this morning if you're single, keep them up. And with the other hand, single people take notes as to who's got their hands raised in the room this morning. So singleness is something now in our society, in the world that we live in, for the first time in history, particularly in the United States of America, there are more single people than there are married people. There are more single people, maybe in this room, maybe not, but certainly in our society, more single people than there are married people. How many of you folks understand that context, understand uh, who you are in, in context with that? of knowing that you are a single person looking across uh, the the whole scope of where you live, what you do, what you interact with, that there are more single people out there than there ever have been before. If you are married like I am, you have to understand, and I have to understand in speaking to a, a, a congregation this morning, that there are more people, or fewer people, excuse me, who understand what a healthy marriage looks like than ever before. Because of that, we look, uh, and we're in the book of Ruth this morning, we look at the book of Ruth, there is this Cinderella story in the Old Testament that's an incredibly applicable book, even though it's 3,000 years old. Because we see what happens in the book of Ruth, this, this relationship that forms between uh, Boaz and Ruth, and we'll meet Boaz today as we go through this passage today, we see a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. But we also see it in context to a society that the last uh, chapter of the book of Judges tells us the context in which they're living is everyone is doing what is right in their own mind or in their own eyes. Doesn't matter what the person next to them is doing, they're doing whatever feels good at the moment. That is the society that we live in today, 3,000 years later. 
Single people, if you're here with us this morning, you have to endure a number of marriage sermons here from the pulpit or, or context where I'm talking to parents and families and those type of things. And so, those of you who are married this morning, you're just going to have to endure this morning, all right? Because we're going to talk some things this morning that are specific to those who are single because it's here in the passage for us today. But don't worry, there's plenty applicable for all of us. In the book of Ruth, we have some central characters if we need to be reminded of them. Uh, And guess what? All of the characters that we're talking about today are single. Naomi is single. Naomi is a woman who is an older widow. We have this single guy, Boaz, that we're going to meet today. He's a pretty special uh, person. And then we have Ruth, uh, who's also a single gal, uh, Ruth, that we're going to talk uh, more about this morning. So if you got your Bibles this morning, will you took, turn, take it out, uh, turn to the book of Ruth. Uh, you may need to look in the table of contents in the front of your Bible because it is a very small book. It's sandwiched right after Judges and uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's a New International Version, which is what I'll preach from this morning, and it's on page 277, if you want to find your way there for us this morning. To give you a little bit of background on where we've been so far in the book, uh, there's a famine in the land. Uh, so there's, there's a reason why there's, there's a desperate times, desperate measures are going on. Uh, we've never experienced anything like this in our culture, in our society, uh, but a very uh, dire time for them. Uh, so there's a famine in the land, and then we've also learned that there's a failure as a father. Uh, we see Elimelech has taken his people away from, uh, his family away from those who can be a resource to them, those who can be helpful to them. He has gone to the land of Moab. And then we find uh, there's a famine in the land, there's a, there's a family that's in trouble, and then there's a bunch of funerals. Elimelech dies, and his two sons die, and they now leave his wife and his two daughter-in-laws in this land, in this foreign land, in trouble. Uh, they are left in Moab, alone in Moab. Moab is not God's people. It is not God's presence. It is not God's place. And that's where they find themselves. Uh, Ruth and the other sister-in-law, Orpah, Orpah decides to go back uh, to her gods and her religion. But Ruth has a conversion experience where she says, you know what, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and I'm coming with you, she says to Naomi. And so these women make the 30 or 40, maybe even 50 mile journey on foot. They are homeless. They are broke. They are bankrupt. They're just a couple of absolutely grieving widows with nothing in their hand but a bit of faith and their heart is going and taking them back to uh, Bethlehem on this epic faith adventure, this journey that they are on. And this is where we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2. So if you've got a white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin for you this morning, it's an outline, just helps you kind of see where I'm at. And so here's your first fill-in for you this morning, as we have a desperate woman in a dire situation. We have a desperate woman in a dire situation. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out. She entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. 
I love how it tells us here that it just, it happened to turn out that way. She happened to come across the field belonging to Boaz. I hope that you know and understand that the, the way that the Hebrew author is writing, this is intended to be almost comic relief. Uh, the idea of like, this is not happenstance. It didn't just happen. It's not because she was lucky. She picked out of the eight fields that were in front of her. She picked the right one. She got the right pull on the, the lottery. No, this was a very specific thing that is tongue-in-cheek about the providence of God. You see, when we see God's providence in the Bible, we see kind of two different proverbial hands that happens here. There's, there's the visible hand. You see this when God shows up, when he, when he parts the Red Sea, when he is seen in a pillar of fire, when an angel comes and it slews, slews, slays the enemy. There it is. Then the angel comes and he slays the enemy. Like, you see the very visible hand of God. God is at work. God is there. It's visible, tangible. You, can, you, you can't say it any other way to say God is moving. But then there's the other hand of God. It's the invisible hand of God. The way that he is moving, there's, there's no miracle. There's no uh, voice coming from heaven that is speaking. But God does provide. And I don't think it's an accident when we see that in Scripture. I don't think it's an accident when we see in our lives of, of who we went to school with, who we went to university with, or who uh, we interviewed with, or the day of the week that uh, we got that job, or the day of the week that you decided not to drive your car over a certain uh, stretch of road, or whatever it is, that there are times where God's invisible hand is also at work. I said at the beginning that statistically the majority of the people who are adults in our nation uh, are single for the first time. See, even for those who grow up in the local church, when you hit your 20s, even though you've grown up in the local church, a lot of times you leave the church statistically, you walk away from God and from God's presence and God's people, very similar to what we see here. Well, you tend statistically in the culture that we live in at this date and this time frame as you move in with someone, you, you cohabitate with someone, and we, we realize that now the majority of singles are cohabiting uh, before they get married. Uh, and so at some point in their life, they might return to church. And if you do return to church and into relationship with God's people, and we see, we see this so often, it becomes common and becomes normative. And we say, this is really what normal life looks like. But the reality is, is, is the Bible doesn't lay it out for us this way. This isn't the way it's intended to be. And what we see here is an alternative way, is the way that, that Ruth here is going to live her life as a woman who gives us a great example of what it looks like to be looking for a relationship. She's widowed, and she has no children. She comes from the wrong people group. She comes from a group of people that have descended from Lot. Their entire family, the whole family line comes between, of, of incest between a mother or a father and a daughter. So this is the side of the family that we don't talk about when we get together for Thanksgiving in a few weeks. We don't, we tell our kids, don't Google that side of the family. We don't want it, you don't want you to know what's going on on that side of the family. This is what Ruth from Moab is like. She comes from the wrong background. She comes from the wrong background spiritually. She worshiped false gods. She comes from the wrong family historically because they descend from the, the wrong nation. Because she's a widow, she's clearly not a virgin, and so that's a big deal in this culture. She's barren, and she may not even be able to have children. She's not sure. And there's, there's a lot that is going wrong for her in that she is bankrupt. She has nothing to her name, and she's homeless. This is the woman Ruth. This is the desperate woman, the position that she is in. Her life is not going well. 
And for a woman in the position that she is in, it'd be very tempting for her to do some things and to uh, act some ways that are ungodly and sinful. And sometimes these women, even in our own culture, will find someone who will take care of them. They'll put themselves in bad relationships with a guy who can just provide a roof over their heads. And because there's, there's nothing worse than being bankrupt and being without a home. This is the position that this woman is in. And yet Ruth is not dating. Ruth is not sleeping around. Ruth is not moving in with someone. The only person that she has, that she's a companion with, is this woman, Naomi. She is being a good friend to this bitter woman, Naomi. Now the name Naomi, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, her name means pleasant or sweet, and yet she has basically legally changed her name to say, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. So if she had been here this morning when we asked you to sign name tags and say, will you introduce yourself, she, she writes on it Mara and then draws a, a frowny face next to her name. This is, this is, and she says, hello, nice to meet you, and she's Eeyore walking around. She's a bitter old woman, but Ruth is a good friend. She's a hard worker, and she has an active faith, not a passive faith, an active faith. She says, uh, well, can I go out? Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. She doesn't know what she's going to find out there, but her active faith is saying, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to find out if there's a way that God is going to show himself faithful. She's new in her faith. But she's saying to Naomi, if you're going to be my people, if your God is going to be my God, let me see what God is up to. Let me see how he is going to act and interact. Too often we have a passive faith. A passive faith being that we are just sitting back, wondering what God's going to do, and just hoping that, that he'll come to be our rescue plan. But the reality is here is her faith is active. Because she's in a dire situation, she needs to be active. And because she is, we'll see what God does. She's a desperate woman in a dire situation. Here's your next villain. She meets a great man with a generous heart. A great man with a generous heart. I'm going to read a number of verses here as you get to meet Boaz. Verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvester. Now, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't you go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She said, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. 
At mealtime, Boaz also said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. What a guy, Boaz, right? This guy is spectacular. You can, can't you almost hear the entrance music? Like when, when Boaz enters the scene, bum, 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 it's Boaz, he's here. People tend to think about life in good seasons and bad seasons. We also, we'll talk about how we're going through a bad season. It was good last year, but this is a tough season for me. And so all I have to do is endure it and knuckle down and fight through a bad season and everything else will turn out okay. When you're in the good season, you try to extend it as long as you can. You try to hope that the bad seasons just kind of stay over there and don't come over here. But when you're going through the bad season, you're just trying to fight through, hoping that you get back into the good season. And through that, how many times you can honestly say, when you're going through it, I can see my life in good seasons and bad seasons, and I don't like the bad seasons. Let me ask you this more. Maybe you can think about it in this way instead of, of the two seasons, the good and the bad, being two railroad tracks that are actually running side by side each other all the time. Because that's the way that our God works. It's almost like these, every life, every season in life, there's a good and a bad thing, but they are running right next to each other. And what is happening here is Boaz is in a good season. And as he is going through this good season, you find that he is in this good season. He's using this good season with some intentionality. As an employer, he leaves the margins for the marginalized. Around the corners of the field, he is making sure that there is something there for those who need some. As a Jew, he's already expected to take 10% of all of he makes, all of his business's profits, to take 10% as a tithe to the temple. But here he's not only doing that, he's also providing, uh, of the culture would say he'd be providing for festivals, uh, for feasts. And so that becomes about 25%. But he's also paying his workers a decent wage. They're happy to be there working for them. And on top of that, he's also making sure that there is a decision that he's made that he's going to care for those who are on the edges. He's going to take care of the marginalized. And he's actually worked into his business model the, the way to be able to do that and the way to be able to fund that. Boaz is in a good season. Ruth, as we said, is in a bad season. She's just had a funeral. She has no children. She's not sure she's be able to bear children. She's living with a bitter old woman. Her dating relationships, they would have to know that this bitter old woman is part of the package deal. Her picture on ChristianMingle.com, in the picture, there's her face, this is Ruth. You think, Ruth is not so bad, but behind her, there's this ugly woman. And, and, and someone texts Ruth, they said, I'm interested in meeting up with you. Tell me what's going on in this picture. Who's the woman in the background? And she says, oh, that's Naomi. She's part of the deal. Nobody calls. Boaz, he comes into the workplace and he says, the Lord be with you or the Lord bless you. And it's almost like all the men pop up out of their cubicles like gophers and say, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. It's an environment that is just a beautiful place. And he is, he is 
created this culture, and they're greeting one another, and it has all the similarities. This is a, this is a, a greeting that they would use in the temple, in a place of worship, and yet he's created his workplace to use the same greeting. He's treating his role as an employer. And those of you who are small business owners or have this type of authority in your workplace, he is using intentionally the space that he has. He is pastoring, he is shepherding his flock there at the workplace. He's a wealthy man. We often, in our context, we think about the rich versus the poor. But what we see here in biblical times, what we see throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Proverbs, which you just came through, is that there are more categories than that. In Scripture, we see an additional layer. We see there's the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich. The righteous rich are someone like Boaz, who's, who's working hard and God is blessing them. And then you see the unrighteous rich uh, who, are, who are greedy and they are preying upon those who are poor and they are uh, uh, charging dishonest wages and, and they steal for their wealth. And then you see that there's righteous poor, those who are like Ruth here, who have, uh, are in a bad situation, but they are righteous in it, and they are working hard and trying to uh, make a better place for themselves. And then there is the unrighteous poor, which we see particularly again in Proverbs, who is the fool in his folly, who wastes everything that they have, who, who spends every penny that they have, who gets paid on Friday, and it's gone before Monday morning comes back around. When we look into Scripture, we need to look at it with a scriptural and biblical mindset, not what we have 2,000 years later. We've got a desperate woman in a dire situation. We've got a great man with a generous heart. Your next fill-in is this. We have a safe place to Selah. A safe place to Selah. Over in Psalm chapter 62, This is David speaking. He says about the Lord, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah or Selah. In the Psalms, we see this word multiple times throughout the Psalms. And most people in my background, I came from a a music degree. And so when I studied this in college, uh, we believe that Selah is actually a musical notation. Many of these hymns were, or excuse me, many of these Psalms were written as poetry to be sung. And so Selah was actually a, a pause in the musical expression that is written into the Psalms. But furthermore, it's also an expression that says, let's pause and think and ponder before the Lord about this. God is a refuge for us, Selah, pause, think about that. And what we see here with Ruth and Boaz is the opportunity for Selah, verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to the daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, this man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to the Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. This is a safe 
place, Naomi said. Earlier in the chapter, you heard Boaz tell his workers, he said, keep your hands off of her if you want to keep your hands, right? He is making dead certain. He tells Ruth, he says, you don't need to go anywhere else. You need to stay here and work here because this is a safe place for you to be and for you to work. You can work all day here and you will make a, a, an honest wage here and more. But if you go over there, I can't protect you over there. If you go over there, you might find out that they don't treat you as well. You go over there, you might find out that it's dishonest wages. You might go over there and find out that you will be preyed upon. This is a safe place. As an aside here, don't you believe that the local church ought to be a safe place? There are a lot of different things that people in our society today have to be afraid of and have to be nervous of and have to, to be concerned about. But it is our responsibility as people to be a safe place. It's our responsibility to be safe people. What are safe people? Well, scripturally we see here, and I'm getting this list from uh, Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor who's put this list together just to be able to talk about what does safe people mean in context to what Boaz is teaching here. Safe people understand the father heart of God. Boaz, he talks to Ruth and he says, what? He calls her daughter at first. He doesn't call her woman. He doesn't call her Moabite. He calls her daughter because he understands that she is someone's daughter, the heavenly father's daughter, someone who is a safe people understand that the father heart of God. Safe people care about your safety. That should be pretty self-explanatory. But he's making sure that she does not come into harm's way. There's a commercial on the radio right now. I don't know if you listen to uh, WGR, but there's this, uh, this commercial that comes on and it has a, a, as, as manly a voice as you can possibly have. And it talks about their company name. It says, we're all about safety. It says, let me tell you what we're about. We're all about safety. And then it starts and he says, S, safety, A, all about safety. F, feeling good about safety. E, everybody loves safety. Thanks, I needed my kids on that one. <laughs> T, talking about safety. Y, you guessed it, safety. I love that commercial because it's so simple. So what is this guy about? Safety. Boaz is safe people. Our church ought to be safe people. Safe people do what? They introduce us to other safe people. He says, you stay here, you work with the women who are following our gleaners. That is a safe place for you. Connects her with other people who we would call this a discipleship process. He says, you stay with them. Safe people enforce good boundaries. He says, as long as you're within these boundaries, as long as you're within my fields, I'll make sure that you are safe. Safe people are generous. He is doing a whole lot more for Ruth than he ever needs to do, yet he is doing that. But it's not only Ruth. Understand there are other people there who are the margins of society that he has also created a space for, for them. He is generous. Safe people encourage our character. He sees what she has done for her mother-in-law and the way that she interacts with her mother-in-law. He says, I've noticed this, and he is encouraging her in it. Safe people pray that they will, that we would flourish. Don't you want our church to be a place that is praying for other people to flourish? Boaz is doing that here. But ultimately, safe people point us to God as our safe 
place, a safe place to selah, meaning to, to pause and reflect and to think about the greatness and the glory and the wonderfulness that is our Heavenly Father, God. And that is what is happening here. Ruth has come from a faraway land. She's come without any options, and she comes into this workspace. She comes into this place that Boaz has provided for her, and it is a safe space, which leads us to our next point, a safe place to Selah. So let's get them together, right? Let, let, let's look, when we look at the story, say, then let's Ruth and Boaz, let's get them together. They look perfect for each other. Maybe so, but let's do it all in God's timing. Verse 23 says, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean <coughs> until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The story doesn't fast forward here. It doesn't jump forward. It doesn't say, and Ruth moved in with Boaz. They cohabitated until they got married. It doesn't say that. All in God's timing. Here as Buffalo Bills fans, we have a young quarterback. There's so many things about playing the game of football that are all about timing and routes and being able to read a defense and that type of different things. But what we see with Josh Allen, a lot of times the announcers will come across and say, he's just a young quarterback. He just needs to be more patient. He needs to wait. He's getting excited. He's getting nervous. And he's throwing the ball. Stop throwing the ball. And we see that because he's not patient enough to wait for the right timing. We see here in Scripture that Ruth and Boaz both had faith enough in their God that they are waiting for God's timing. Isaiah chapter 40, it's a very familiar, very familiar verse. Youths will faint and be weary. Young men even shall fall exhausted. But those who will wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. When we wait on the Lord to deliver, when we wait on the Lord to answer our prayers, when we wait on the Lord to renew our strength, we wait on the Lord to do only what He can do. We wait on Him because we have this understanding, this baseline decision that we have made that He is God and I am not. Start there. He is God. He is in control. It's all in His timing, and I am not. We are waiting for God because He is a good Father, and He will be good for us. We are waiting on God. He changes us. He strengthens us. He rewards those who wait, and His timing is always perfect. We have a desperate woman in a dire situation. We have a great man with a generous heart, a safe place to Selah all in God's perfect timing. We have to be reminded here that the story of Ruth is God's little love story inside of the greater love story that he is talking about. The greater love story that has been written between God the creator and human that he creates. You see that Boaz is pointing us towards Jesus, and as, as Ruth, she's something like the church, and it's pointing us to the way that God's people, and the truth is that all of us here on the earth belong to the Lord, and you are His, and you and I, we were Moabites. 
We came from a distant place. She descended from Lot and we descended from Adam. We are a bad family. We have a bad background. Furthermore, she comes in, she is spiritually confused. And no matter what your background is, we are all coming in spiritually confused. She comes empty-handed, and we all come before the throne of God empty-handed. All we have on earth is really just what God has given to us and what we gleaned from God's field. We didn't make this world. We didn't create any of it. We didn't provide any of these things. It's through God's provision that we even can read this story this morning. We've got to say, I'm a lot like Ruth. I come spiritually confused. I'm from the wrong family. I'm empty-handed. I'm just sort of gleaning what the Lord has given and what He's provided for me. As the story continues, I don't want to give it all away, but but Ruth and Boaz are going to come together. If you've read this before, we, we will see that. But it's a demonstration of someone called Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to the earth about a thousand years later after this couple, and he very literally comes into the fields on this planet. He comes into a small stable. We're about to celebrate it as we're coming into the Christmas season. Home Depot and Lowe's will let you know we've been there already for a while. But we're about to celebrate the creator of the universe coming into a small stable in the middle of a shepherd's field. He literally comes to this planet. It already all belongs to him. And he pronounces a blessing over his people and tells us that if we grab a hold of him, that he will put his wing over us very much like Boaz does and ultimately let us become blessed because of who he is and the sacrifice that he has made for you and for me for our sins. So here's your last fill-in for you this morning. A desperate woman in a dire situation, a great man with a generous heart, a safe place to see law. In all, all in all, it's God's perfect timing that we receive a new name, a new name. If you're familiar with the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to get there in a couple of weeks so that you can make the connection this Christmas season, but the genealogy lists Ruth, Ruth as the grandmother of King David, the greatest king that the Israelites have. But this morning we're talking about a new name. I want to take us somewhere else. We turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Last book of the Bible, easy to find. Revelation chapter 2. Fly over there if you will. Open up that last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. When we talk about a new name, this is the new name that you and I receive. Whoever has ears, let them hear. That's all of us, right? You with me? We all there now? Revelation chapter 2. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Specifically, he is writing this letter. There's seven letters to churches here. Pergamum is who he's writing to now. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, or the the bread of life. This church is a church who is known for, the city is known for sexual immorality. Very similar to the place where she is coming from, Ruth the Moabite. But her name is not going to be Ruth the Moabite going forward. It is going to be Ruth, the grandmother of King David. I will give some of them hidden manna or the bread of life. I also give that person a white stone that has a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
There's a great old hymn, many of you know, that is, comes right from this passage. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's, anyone? Mine. Oh yes, it's mine. If you're familiar with that hymn, you don't sing that hymn cruising along in neutral. You are in high gear. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point because of what Jesus has done. And it says, we don't even know that name yet. And it'll be known only to the Father and to you and I. You see, Ruth had a new name. She was no longer going to be Ruth the Moabite from a terrible city with a terrible background. She was going to be Ruth, the grandmother of David. Her story would change. Her name would be different. She would go from widow's garments to a wedding dress. She would go from poverty to prosperity. She would go from being alone and afraid to being adored and loved. She would go from sadness to song. She would go from being languished to be laughing with joy. She would go from misery to motherhood. That's what God does when he gives us a new name. There's a new name written down in glory. We serve a Savior who makes all things new. We sang a song last week with this line, I'm not who I used to be, I am redeemed. This sermon series is about that word, redeemed. We see it here with Ruth. We see a life that has been redeemed. But if you don't make the connection to what God has done for you and me, we have not spoken clearly enough, friends. I've been redeemed. And what's the evidence that we see in this new name? We see it scripturally in two covenant signs. First, and we just celebrated one last week, and we'll celebrate another one at the end of this month, believers' baptism. When we baptize someone, when we, we take them under the water, we bring them back up. Do you ever hear what the pastor says? I'm not sure if you always get to hear it because we're a distance away from you. But as we raise them up, we say, raise to walk with newness of life. There's a new name. The old man is passed away. The new has come. And then we have communion. And we come to the communion table this morning. And those of you who are communion attendees, if you'll come forward with me at this time. Communion is that second way that we get to be able to demonstrate the story of redemption that is being played in our lives. It's so much more about redemption than it is about grape juice and a cracker, friends. If that's what you think this is about, you've missed it. There's a greater story being told. If you think this morning's sermon is about a guy named Boaz and a gal named Ruth and we're glad that they got together, that's not the main point. The main point is about the greatness and the glory of God and how he takes the broken things and the damaged things and he makes all things new. When we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to this table, Jesus says that he was broken for you and for me. Jesus said, I've given myself for you. His blood was given for you and for me, and we celebrate that here because he has taken what is broken and he has put it back together. That's the power of a holy God. That's what there's no other religion on this planet that even pretends for that to be true to take all broken things and mend them. There is a new name. God has made all things new.